Sports Business Strategy Podcast. I'm Will Item. I'm Ramon Alawalia. And I'm Brittany Ramos. Guys, how are you doing today? Well, I know one of us is having a much better week than two of us. And he's going to this game called, uh, I think it's called the Super Bowl. No, you can't say it. It is the big game. I don't think we actually have the license to call it that. It is the big game. Please don't sue us. Well, technically, I'm, you know, the Chiefs are playing in it, so there is okay. what that is. But I just said it instead of the the big game or superb owl, as Stephen Colbert used to do. But right. um, funny enough fact, actually, Lamar Hunt, who, who founded the Chiefs, actually came up with the name the Super Bowl um, way back when. Um, from a, it was from a, from from a kid's toy. So a little bit of Super Bowl trivia there for you. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely exciting. Um, you know, going back to back, you never expect to to do it. So few teams have, but. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting week. Our team, our staff won't be going, so there's not the uh, the in person experience that comes along with that. But you know, we're going to be cheering from Kansas City, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. What does a week look like, or I guess two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl? Are you just reading articles, or is there something you're doing on the business side to prep for it? You know, an offsite? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, that's a great that's a great <laughs> question. Though. Um, I think you know I. Contrary to popular belief, I actually do work. Um, so usually in, in a year when you're going, you need those two weeks to prepare because there's so many partner requests for Super Bowl tickets, filling those, organizing parties, events, travel, all that stuff is really, really important. So um, just kind of working through that. And Winston is just really messed up about it. So as you can hear in the back, he's uh, he's doing his annual wine. He got home from daycare today, but... It didn't. It did not matter. So you'd think he'd be happy that you're not. You'd going think, yeah, and, and unfortunately, Amelia's out right now, so I'm uh, I, I'm on dog and podcast duty tonight. So, Will, what what about what about the NBA? Obviously, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder season's already underway. How have things been? You guys are playing during the coronavirus, not in a bubble. What's that been like for you? Chugging along, you know. The uh, Thunder right now have been lucky that no games have been postponed from our own side of things. Beginning of the year against the Houston Rockets got postponed, but that was more of worry on their side. And then again, we just had another one postponed, but again, it was just out of precaution for the other team. Uh, so luckily we've been uh, pretty lucky to keep our players safe and chugging along with games. So things are going well uh, over here on the Thunder side. So we've got uh, potentially a couple of partnership deals to be announcing soon. So it seems like things are picking up on the business side. Obviously, you've uh, seen from a couple of the NBA teams are starting to go back to capacity. I think the Hawks are doing 8% capacity for their fans. So hopefully, you know, in the next month or two, we've got a handful of more teams who are ramping up to be able to allow fans in, uh, assuming vaccines are being rolled out and we can uh, do everything in a safe manner. With you guys having some experience in the bubble this summer, how has it been for you guys in kind of adjusting to this new norm that we've had to live in during this this COVID world with, you know, partnerships and just game day in general? Did it do you feel like it made you a little bit more prepared with your experience in a bubble in the bubble? Or are you guys still gonna ha- had to, you know, really readjust that experience? Well, I think the tricky thing, especially from a signage standpoint, is the norm that we are adjusting ourselves to is not the norm. It's just the temporary, just as a lot of the work that went into the bubble had to do with very temporary solutions um, to have value continuation plans for our partners. And the same goes right now uh, in the arena as we don't have fans and the, you know, what will be the normal of having fans back into the arena. So a lot of the things we're planning for, you know, whether it be the tarps or certain pieces of rotational digital signage that won't be available once fan seats go back into those sections. Uh, That's the interesting thing is being comfortable with something that we know is going to change rather quickly. It's almost like you have to kind of be okay with the fact that the short term is not the long term, right? I mean, even for Brittany and I, we can't plan to have tarps next season, or if they are, we're going to have to readjust. It's hard to be strategic and think about how to impact a partnership when it's constantly changing, right? And it's out of your control. I mean, a lot of times things are out of our control, but this is out of our control in a completely different environment where, you know, halfway through the season, Will, you guys could be having fans and then you could potentially go back to no fans. Like that's a very strong possibility. A lot of NFL teams had that where they brought some people in, they took them out. You know, we were very lucky enough to have 
fans the entire season and kind of be the model for Tampa Bay for the Super Bowl this season, um, which was uh, which was kind of a, a nice feather in the cap to the operations team. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the trickier parts as far as the data that we receive and the insights that we usually glean from our fans, uh, whether it even be a survey that we do every year with our season ticket members, where we give them a list of, you know, name as many partners as you can up to 10 uh, of the Thunder. And we hesitated on doing it this year because when we're surveying our season ticket members, we're sending that survey out under the assumption that most of our season ticket members have attended 30 to 41 of our home games. And so we could still send it out to our STMs who we know are watching the games on TV, but the exposure to brand signage, their awareness levels, I think are just going to naturally dip. And so would it be interesting to see that data? Sure. Do we think it's going to be helpful for us in the long run? Not necessarily. So it's, it's limited the uh, types of insights that we can get from fans. And so we've just had to pivot in different ways. Right now we're working on survey data on just general things that they have interest in. So we're using it more for prospecting than we are actual awareness of our current partners, just because we think the data will just be inconsistent with our previous data. So that's the hardest thing. Yeah, I think too is just, and something that I think about as unfortunately our season has wound down now, but is just kind of going into the new season in 2021. And, you know, us here in California, we're still very much in a lot of different restrictions and so forth and not really having a clear projection. Uh, and for all of us as well, not just here in California, but a clear projection of what's to come for 2021. So I think from a strategy standpoint, one of the things I'd love your guys' insight in as well is just, you know, how do we go in strategically and, and kind of, we, we all had to be a lot more reactive last year, but how do we go in proactively understanding we may have some of these circumstances? Is it going back with a, to partners with a plan A, plan B, plan C? Is it, you know, going in full force? Is it, hey, we do believe in a full stadium. We do believe in that things are going to be normal again. I think that's where I sit now of kind of evaluating what is our strategic vision going into next year with so many different unknowns? I don't know if you guys feel the same, but I think kind of as we look back at this season and plan for next, it's definitely this interesting moment of time of from a strategic standpoint to start kind of planning ahead, both on a, a sales and um, just how we're going to integrate our partners and even just fan activations in general. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of testing over the next couple of months. To, to be honest with you, I don't know what a lot of the, the right answers are, whether it's a lot of teams, including us, are building out fan zones or arcades in our mobile apps. And the thinking is, at least right now, without fans in the arena, we still want to be able to provide uh, partner exposure uh, through games since we aren't currently able to do it through in-arena promotions. Is that going to be something that continues on when fans are in the arena i'd like to think so but also i don't know maybe it turns out that once uh people can go back into the arenas the fan zone dips in unique users so uh, right now we're we're kind of testing things to see what works just in general whether it will still work when we go back to normal you know that's still just to be seen but i think the more new things that you try even if three out of five things fail when fans come back and say, hey, that was fun when we needed it. But if even two of those five things, you know, still work out when fans come back, I consider that a success. So I don't know what those two out of the five things are going to be. Um, and that's what I'm interested to see. Yeah, I think for us, you know, once the season finishes and we kind of reevaluate, you know, the NFL is fortunate based on the way the calendar un un unveils and kind of folds out is that basically we're not playing games till August, which potentially gives us a little bit more room, obviously, you know, the vaccine, what does that look like? But with us, fortunately enough in Kansas City, we've already kind of had a little bit of a blueprint in, put in place. Partners are aware. Now, obviously, we're going to have to get even more creative and use that summer to kind of evaluate what the NBA is doing, what the NHL is doing, what MLB potentially does, because we're going to try to take some of those ideas and match them to kind of prepare us for like Will said, like if two of those ideas work in a COVID era, like why wouldn't we try to roll them out into a new experience, right? Some of one of the ideas we had during draft was we have a very kind of elite room where we have decision makers, but that was only lift, you know, limited to 10 people. 
with the COVID and kind of Zoom, we were able to make it 40 and we were invite, able to invite more people to intake into the experience. So I think about those as ways to innovate and find new things and take from other leagues and kind of balance it out should be something that could push us forward come next season. Well, this is already a longer than usual intro, but it's going to get a little bit longer before we bring on uh, Zaylene Jen Mohammed, uh, the head of partnership development for LA28. We do have a game to play, and this game is called Olympic Sport or Eat My Shorts. favorite name of a game, but uh, I needed something that rhymed with sport and eat my shorts was the first thing I came up with. So Armand, <laughs> Brittany, we're going to go rapid fire round for you. We're going to go every other. I'm going to name a sport. It has either been an Olympic sport at one time during the Olympics, or it has never been a sport. And it is up to you to say Olympic sport or eat my shorts. Who would like to go first? I'll go first. Okay, we are playing for the gold and the bronze medal. If you get second place, no silver. That goes to me. Armand, your very first sport, croquet. Not. Oh, eat, eat, eat my shorts, I guess. There you go. Eat my shorts. No, that was an Olympic sport in 1900 in Paris. Oh. Brittany, arm wrestling. Olympic sport. Oh, that is eat my shorts. That has never been an Olympic sport. Incorrect. Real aficionados over here of the Olympics. <laughs> Armon, Korfball. I don't even know what that is. Is that real? You're making this up. My shorts. Korfball is a sport, supposedly, but it has never been an Olympic sport. So Okay, there we go. You do have uh, a point for that. Brittany, all-around dumbbell. I'm going to say Olympic sport. It sounds so absurd that it just has to be, right? That, in fact, was an Olympic sport in 1904. We are tied at one-to-one. Armon, lawn darts. Eat my shorts. In fact, eat my shorts. Brittany, tug of war. Eat my shorts. That was an Olympic sport from 1900 to 1920. Oh, goodness. Armand, pigeon shooting. Yes. Olympic sport? Yeah, it's an Olympic sport, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. 1900. Paris had a lot of weird Olympic sports in the 1900s. Brittany, squash. Olympic sport. Eat my shorts. Never what? been a sport. Sorry, what? it is a good sport. Never been in the Olympics. No. Wow. Armon, the equestrian high jump. Sorry, you say equestrian high jump? Equestrian high jump. Olympic sport. It was an Olympic sport in 1952. Brittany, equestrian low jump. Eat my shorts. Only the high jump was a qualified to be an Olympic sport. Armon, swimming obstacle race. Eat my shorts? Oh, that was an Olympic sport in uh, 1900. Brittany, hot air ballooning. Olympic sport. That was an Olympic sport again in 1900. Paris was crazy. Armand, motorboating. <laughs> Eat my shorts. Unfortunately, oh my motorboating is what water motorsports was called in 1908. Oh. Three different events, the eight meter, 60 foot, and open class were held. So motorboating was an Olympic sport. That's Rock, paper, scissors. Eat my shorts. That impact yeah, is that eat was... my shorts. We are tied at four to four with two more to go. Armon, parkour. Eat my shorts. In fact, eat my shorts. I think it's trying to be an Olympic sport, but in fact is not what? one yet. Brittany, to tie. Rope climb. Olympic sport. That was an Olympic sport in 1896, 1904, 1906, 1924, and 1932. You guys, you tied for the gold Well, that was very eventful, Will. Thank you for organizing and doing all of the research on what I still can't believe were actual sports. Man, Paris in 1900 must have been a crazy time. So let's get into the interview with uh, Zeline Jin Mohammed. All right. 
welcome here. We have a very special guest, one that I am very excited about for a multitude of reasons. The first one, obviously, because she's Canadian. We are joined by the wonderful Zaylene Jen Muhammad. Welcome to the show. Hey, Armand. Thank you. I'm so excited. I will talk to Will and Brittany as well, but for you, because of the Canadian pride, I'm excited. Yes, that Canadian connection is there for sure. So, as we like to start off the show, we like to have our guests kind of give a quick introduction about their career and how they got to where they are. No problem. Uh, it's a fun story that I like to tell. And, you know, Armand, I think because you're Canadian and also have kind of similar cultural backgrounds, you'll, you'll probably understand this. But I, you know, grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, born and raised by a pretty traditional Indian uh, family. And... Unfortunately for me and both my, me and my family, um, I turned out to not like very traditional Indian female things and wanted to grow up being a hockey player. And that's what my goal was. And if anybody has watched Bend It Like Beckham, um, that was me. I, I hid sports equipment, usually a hockey stick and a pair of skates in the backyard and would jump out and try to sneak away and go play. And you know, at a very early age, found a passion for sport. And when I realized that I wasn't good enough to make the NHL, you know, I started to think about things that I would still find passion in. And, you know, at that point in time, I was uh, dating my now husband. And he said, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I was like, well, you know, it's something in sport, but I'm not quite sure. And, and he, you know, really pushed me to think through the business side of sport. And I ended up going to um, the University of Massachusetts, their McCormick um, uh, Sport Management graduate program. And I, I have to tell you that that basically gave me the keys to the rest of my life. I had no idea that there was this industry um, that existed where I could be involved in an, an area and a passion that I loved so much. So I had a stint very happily at the NHL, which for all Canadians is a very big deal and loved walking into that office at, every day. I worked at MLS at, when they were very young, so 10-year organization at that point in time, and cut my teeth basically at MLS because you know when you work for a 10-year-old league, you are doing partnership marketing one day, you're doing licensing the next day, you're doing operations the next day, special events the next day. So you know that allowed me to see a lot of different parts of the business. I leaned in and loved the partnership marketing side of things there. And, and that's kind of where my career took off. Right? And then I was at an agency working with GMR Marketing on their Visa account. From there, I went to the client, to Visa, and spent almost six years there and had three different jobs there. One as um, Olympic on the execution side. Then I did the sponsorship strategy role for about three years, which we should get into because that's, I think, where my career has really gone. Um, and then I, you know, led all of the Olympic project management um, before I went back to GMR, ran the San Francisco office, which gave me a really good understanding of, you know, leadership, managing a very big team. We had about 55, 60 people there and I was managing that entire group, um, running the P&L of an agency that was pretty profitable, um, but, you know, going through some interesting times when the industry was changing. Uh, and then, you know, I went back to the property side and almost full, full circle and came back to LA 28. And my, my role at LA 28 is actually a really interesting role um, in that it's it ties together a lot of the background and the experience that I have. And it's all around innovation and creation of new assets and a lot of strategic thinking. And so, Armana, like, I, I feel very blessed. I think my parents are still wondering when I'm coming back home and if I'm coming back home, um, but they also see how happy I am and that this has really filled a part of my soul. And so I, you know, I think the saying of you have to be good to be lucky and lucky to be good, I think that rings very true for me. One of the things you mentioned is that you know, bend it like Beckham was kind of something you thought about, you know, myself, you know, I grew up in a, in, in a split house where it was, uh, you know, from England and from India. And so growing up, I didn't have that full Indian experience, but for me, sports was always kind of that, that thing that kind of pushed me and I found passion in it as well too. So, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure you took a hockey stick with you on the stage when you won the SBJ 40 under 40. Am I correct with that one? That is correct. I did that. Exactly. And I think that was the first moment when I was in the sports industry, when I knew and I started following your career with how exceptional you are. So again, this is a huge deal for me today on multiple levels, as I mentioned earlier. So 
Solid research, Armand. Solid. Something, something I do, especially Canadians, right? No, no Canadian can hide from me in that sense. So one of the things that I want to talk about is the idea of sponsorship strategy. You know, you've kind of been riding the wave of shaping what the industry looks like. So could you maybe kind of talk about what it was then and how maybe that has shifted to now and where you see the next frontier? I know that's a big question, but I think you're a perfect example to talk about that. Yeah, it's been a really interesting career journey for me, not just because of where I've kind of come and gone, but to your point, how the industry is, has really evolved. You know, when I started, we were on kind of the later stages of the industry where from a sponsorship and commercial perspective, there were still deals being done that were done for the love of the sport and love of the game. And what I mean by that is someone who had decision-making power um, either played soccer before or loved hockey or had a son who did this or daughter who did that. And so there was still some intangible kind of reflection on why that sponsorship made sense for the company. And I think we benefited, a lot of properties benefited from that type of decision-making because there, there wasn't a lot of justification required. There was a lot of conversation of like the asset mix, right? How many eyeballs am I going to get? And, you know, where does my logo show up? And, you know, those types of conversations. But, but outside of that, it, it didn't get too much deeper. Well, I, you know, since that time, a couple of things have happened. Number one, the industry itself has been disrupted in so many ways because people can spend their time in so many different ways and directions and so that disruption and fragmentation meant that properties had to spend more in making their um, brands and their content that much more consumable that much more relevant that much more appealing so that's you know the transition of the industry number one and then number two, you know, much like most other things that we've seen, you know, happen over the last 10, 15 years, the price point has increased because those assets that you're going to build are costing more money. Um, and, the, and the market itself is, is rising. It's, it's just like the housing market, right? So like everything kind of goes up. And all of a sudden, like a $200,000 deal where somebody had decision-making power under, you know, $250,000 or less, for example, and they could just sign that deal is a million dollars or $10 million a year, right? And so that decision-making power went from maybe a senior level manager, maybe a VP, maybe an SVP to CFO, CEO, board of directors, right? And so because of that, the, the requirement for really good ROI, really good financial modeling, really good analysis, really good understanding of asset value just became more prevalent. And you started to see some properties, not all, but some properties build out functions in their, in their leagues and teams that allowed for this type of knowledge, right? And so I was really fortunate because as that was happening, that's when I, you know, I was at Visa probably at that time and in a role that was very executional on the Olympic side where my boss at the time started to see the shift. And he looked at me and he was like, we are getting a lot of questions of our sponsorship portfolio at Visa at that point. I think we had 55 plus sponsorships in our global portfolio. And, you know, there was a lot of questions of like, do we need all 55? Is there a better way to spend this money? Are we getting value out of each of them? Do we hit all of our target audience? What's the, like, what's the ROI? Um, how do we actually approve the things that are happening in another country? Do we see them? Do we have, you know, do we have a purview into what's going on? And I don't think we can answer any of those questions. And so he kind of looked at me and he was like, I think this is a really good job for you. And to be honest, Armand, like I looked at him, I remember this conversation so well. I was like, are you sure that you want me to do this? Because I've never done that before. I knew that I had an analytical kind of perspective. I knew that I like to see the big picture, but, um, and, and ha like have a, um, like to peel back kind of the layers of the onion and kind of break apart a question, but I'd never done that as part of a job ever. And he's, and he, I think he saw a skill set in me and he was like, yep, I, we need it. And I think you can do it. And so the first six months of that job, I sat on the sponsorship team, but very close to our strategy and planning team. And they were all, you know, McKinsey, Accenture consultants that thought in a certain way and literally learned as I was like 
built and flew the plane at the same time. Um, and so it, that, I think, you know, seeing where the industry was going and just being really fortunate to be, to have the skill set, but also to be able to use that skill set in a time where the industry really needed it. It just happened, that, that happened. And now, like, this is actually quite normal. Like, most of us on this phone, this is kind of how we think. These are skill sets that we, we have developed. Um, and it's necessary. And most teams and leagues and properties and brands, for that matter, have this element of thinking um, in their in their skill set, in their functional teams. Awesome. Kind of piggybacking off of what you said, you talk about building the plane and flying it and trying to do that kind of simultaneously at the same time. Um, totally have had that experience as well. So I appreciate you saying that because it, it hits my heart. How do you feel in your previous roles going from the brand side, obviously to the agency and GMR have prepared you for the role that you're in today? Yeah, Brittany, it's, it's such a good question. And every year I get this question and I, my answer is different because every year you get a different type of perspective on why, why and how it was important. In my job today, my role is to provide a strategic and analytical perspective on the commercial team. So very focused on revenue, but not, not the salesperson, not at the front kind of doing the sale and not on the servicing side, someone who sits right in the middle to be really thoughtful about, across both sides. Now in that role, right, I am trying to look at the commercial landscape, figure out which industries we want to actually look at from a, from a partnership perspective, you know, who, who needs the asset and who can afford the asset and then create new programs, new assets, new rights and benefits, you know, innovative platforms that we think our brands are going to want to buy. So that's what I do. The things that you need to be able to do that job, you need a really good understanding of brands, really good. You need to understand that, how they make money. You need to understand what they owe to their shareholders if they're public. You need to understand that maybe marketing is fourth on the list of their objectives and not first. And even within marketing, that sponsorships may be way down on how they, you know, how they most effectively think that they market and target their consumer. Um, when you're looking at the industry from a sales perspective, you better be able to read a PL statement. You better be able to read analyst reports. You, bet, you have to do all of that in my role. And so the brand side really has taught me that even though on, on, you know, as I sit on LA 28 and I'm thinking about the Olympic and Paralympic Games every day and I love it and it moves me and I'm emotional about it, the brand that I'm talking to is probably thinking about it for five minutes of their day, 10 minutes of their day, an hour if I'm lucky. And so knowing that, how I speak to them, how I build a presentation for them, what assets I put in that presentation, A, has to be told in a really compelling way because I may just get a little bit of their time and be better drive against business objectives. Because I'm just, if I'm just going in and saying, hey, we're great, they don't care. They have 50 things that are great that they're trying to balance between. So that's the brand side. The agency side, um, <laughs> the agency side has taught me uh, a lot about ideation and creativity, right? Because now I'm trying to, the, the amazing and really hard part of my job today is that I literally have a white canvas that I'm trying to start at the bottom and say, okay, what do I want to build that someone hasn't seen before? And that's hard, right? That's really hard. And especially if you're an analytical person, that's really hard because you're like, where's the number that I can start with, right? So um, that's where the agency experience has really helped because I, that was my job. I was tasked with that all the time um, to, be, to be really creative, to ideate, to throw something out that I loved a week ago and start again. Uh, and so I think that's where the agency um, has really helped. In the other place, right, I'm working for LA28. And even though it's seven, eight years away, it, it's still a lot of work. Like property side work, you guys know, it's a lot of work. Agency side, a lot of work, right? And so you, even at, you know, as you progress through your career and you're at the level I'm at right now, like I'm still working very long days because I love my job, but also because I'm trying to build a property, right? So the agency life actually trains you very well for that. It doesn't feel abnormal. You're just you're like, I've done this before. This is normal. To follow up on that, what really drew you to this opportunity? 
you know, it's the Olympics, it's an eight, you know, it's, it's coming in seven, eight years. So to your point, it's a very different situation than probably some of your previous roles and just how the, the role is structured and just the opportunity. What really drew you in and said, this is the role I want to do next? Yeah, and for all of the listeners who are listening right now, if you could see the smile on my face as Brittany asked me this question, th this has been a dream come true for me, this job. And the reason is probably, probably twofold. Number one, you know, LA28 stands for all of the values I believe in as a person, as a human being, right? It believes in diversity. It believes that differences make us better. And, that, and that's because LA is like that. LA is kind of, there, there is no one LA. LA is like centered on a mashup of cultures. It's centered on, you know, diversity. And so the, the organizing committee kind of, that's the truth that they, they are, that, that, that there's, they sit on. Um, and so, you know, they believe in co-creation. There is, there are meetings that we have internally as a team where there, there is no ego in the room. We are just trying to build something amazing. We are trying to build something transformational. And I saw that in my interview process, which was like, when, where do I sign to be a part of this team, right? So I think that's the answer number, so number, you know, first answer to that question is just the values of the organization spoke to me so truthfully as, an, as a human being that I was, my heart was in it right away. And then number two is, this is a job that gives me an opportunity to build something from scratch. And I've been a part of some really great organizations, awesome organizations, but mo most of those had already kind of set, were already set on a tra trajectory. They had a lot of history behind them, um, a lot of process. And, you know, in, in, those, in those types of organizations, it's really hard to turn a big ship. Well, this is a small ship for now. It'll be big. And so I, I have the ability and, and leadership and peers around me that are just like, Z, go, go do your thing. Like, just create something and let's see what happens. And that's, that's a pretty amazing feeling, right? When you can come up with an idea and someone says to you, hey, that's an awesome idea. Go build it. That's pretty cool. So when you say building from scratch, you know, we know other organizations that are out there who've had to build from scratch. The Kraken recently, Austin FC have had all about, you know, two or three years of lead time. Uh, the thing that gives me anxiety is that you're building from scratch for something that is about seven years away. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, organizations out there. If they had seven years, they'd really start going about six years in. You know, if we dive into a little bit more about your role with LA28, you know, what did your role look like in this last year? What does it look like this year, four years from now? How are you kind of building out for success for 2028 with a strategy focus? Yeah, well, good, good question. And, and anxiety, you know, I'm not saying that I don't have anxiety of thinking what eight years from now looks like. If you looked at the last eight years and where we are today, you're kind of like, oh my God, this world is going to change so much. I try to you know, on one hand, think of the anxiety and the other hand, think of opportunity and excitement of like what might be possible. So I, I try to find that balance, but you're not, you're not wrong. Uh, you know, I, I think these, this last year and even this year, um, somewhat is still about, um, building our house, right. Building the framework by which we will have a great, um, set of partners and, be able to do some things for the movement, the Olympic and Paralympic movement for our athletes, and actually, frankly, for the country that will start to kind of, you will start to see things in the marketplace, fingers crossed, over the next eight years. So, so right now, my role has been very much about, you know, setting the commercial strategy up. You know, what is, what is the story that we're going to tell from a commercial perspective? How does that tie in to what our brand stands for? Um, how do we work with NBC? How do we work with the USOPC? How do we set up um, revenue platforms that don't just enable our revenue structure as an OCOG, but, but enable and enhance the revenue structure for Team USA, for their NGBs, for the athletes who compete every day, right? So um, it's really starting at, at the bottom and saying, okay, what, what do we need to create right here so that the next year and the next year and the next year um, can just build on that? Uh, 
a lot of deck writing this year, <laughs> lots of storytelling, lots of slide making, lots of analysis, lots of reading, lots of whiteboarding, um, which I love. So all of those things have been have been great. If I could put more hours in the day, that would be better, but I can't. So that's that's these first couple of years. I think from 23 to 24, you know, hopefully the bulk of our commercial model is set and that we've signed a majority of kind of our, our top level partners. Hopefully we'll see how the economy kind of plays out. Uh, and, and then the focus will be on further development, refinement, and the beginning of the execution of our, of our programs. And what we're doing is we're building these things called purpose, purpose-driven platforms. And these platforms, you know, so our commercial partners will have very traditional assets, which you and I, you know, know about and know well. But, you know, with an eight-year journey, the, the opportunity there is that you can actually make some really great change. And that's hard to do in two years or three years. But if you want to change how social justice is looked at, perceived, driven in this country, you can do that. And so you can make a pretty big impact in seven or eight years. If you want to think about climate change, you can, do, you can make a pretty big impact in eight years. If you want to think about inclusivity, if you want to change kind of how education is structured in this country, you can do that in eight years. You know, the great thing about LA is we have a long time. But we also have, LA is like one of the best sports cities in the world. We don't have to build any venues. There is no infrastructure that is required. And so because we don't have to spend time there, we can actually spend time doing other things for the city and for the country um, that maybe we wouldn't have, maybe another organizing committee wouldn't be able to do. So that's where we're spending our time is like, how do we plant flags today so that when we leave in 28, these flags are flying, not in 2029, now. Like, we're, we're, we're doing some of those things now. And so that's what I'll be doing in 23 and 24. From 25 to 28, you and I will be looking at technology that we've never seen before and going, oh, my God, how do we use this? So I have a, I have a feeling right now that in those years, not only will we be in execution mode for games, but we'll be refining a lot of those assets that we built early on because there's just going to be new things that come to the table. And so one of the things we've told all of our partners is that this isn't going to be partner, a partnership that is about protecting and controlling what's in your contract. This is a partnership that's going to be around empowering and supporting what we can do in the future, right? So we are not kidding ourselves. I don't know what's going to happen in 2020. I have no idea right now, but I know that I'll be flexible and I know that I'll adapt and I know that I'll recreate something um, that drives someone's business objectives. And that's going to be my role. Sounds like flexibility is going to be the key. Flexibility, adaptability. Yeah. Right. And, and I imagine that up until 2024, those are the conversations you are having with the commercial partners of, we will work on more of the granular ROI metrics to figure out how we're going to measure success as we get closer to know what are those actual objectives. Whereas right now, trust us along with this ride. We'll paint the vision for you and we'll work it through. Right. And so you said it so well, Will, because I, as you were talking, I was like, this is not easy. Like trying to sign an eight year, seven year deal on trust is, uh, you know, that's tough. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a financial decision on, on trust that can be really difficult. Um, you know, the things that I think people lean into as we tell them to trust us, number one, just the power of the Olympic and Paralympic movement. It is something that has arguably the, the biggest following across the world. People have emotional affinity towards it. Um, there is diversity probably outside any other sports league in the U U.S. Like it, it speaks to diversity. The Team USA comes from every single corner of this country, from every single different type of creed. And so there's some, there's some things within the movement that people already understand, they buy into, they believe. Then they see the potential for LA. They know that LA has hosted the games a couple times before. They see again the the vision for diversity um, and the essence for co-creation, and so they they can they can feel that and they understand it. I think what happens after that point in time is that we build the value proposition so that there are things that are tangible that they know will come true, and then there's a a piece that is a little bit intangible, a little bit ambiguous that they have to trust. But because it's not all ambiguous, 
they feel a little bit better about the whole value proposition and, and um, it doesn't become one of those things like putting a finger in there. I don't know if that's going to work or not because we know that that's not going to that's not going to jive when they try to get this approved. So we, we try to have a really healthy balance and a skew towards as much of it being kind of tangible, measurable ROI with a segment of that being like, hey, there's a really big opportunity here. We think it's going to be huge. Here's why we think it's going to be huge. But let's like, we'll have to see how it plays out. You talk about, obviously, as you're you're building these platforms and you talk a lot about innovation and, and building this year for sports was unlike any other. We had to really dig deep. You know, we had to flip activations into crazy digital spaces we've never gone before. Do you feel like COVID pushed the sports industry to really challenge itself into becoming more innovative to having to think deeper? Has there been things that you've seen that maybe you're excited about that the sports industry has actually taken a step in a more innovative direction? Like what have you seen or what are you excited about as you're looking towards the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think that COVID, if you have to look at it as like glass half full, has done a lot of interesting things for a lot of different industries, right? Um, and sport being a, a really prime example. You know, at the end of the day, Brittany, I still feel like, and I'm speaking to you now as a sports fan who loves to watch and play, that when there is an opportunity to return to sport as a fan in the traditional way, in person, um, and not even person attending a game, you know, even having tons of people over at your house and watching a game, um, I, 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 I believe in that kind of just as a fan and, and think it will come back and hope it comes back just like that. In the interim, what, is, what has happened with the industry and the innovation that has happened as, especially on the marketing side, as people find different and unique ways to connect with fans, I think has been really, really interesting. Um, I think the best example I can think of, and there's been a lot, but the one that I like the most has been around what was done with the Jordan and Last Dance series and how athletes and teams and properties have used content in a really different way to bring you back to times or bring you in to a story or into a stadium or into a training facility, you know, where you're just getting to experience something in a, in a whole new way. And I know that feels... It doesn't feel innovative. It's not like a social media activation, uh, et cetera. But I think those documentaries have been done so well that the experience that you get when you kind of finish an episode and you want to get to the next one right away, it just, it's, it hasn't been done before. And you have people that are not sports fans. My husband, technically not a sports fan, also not a great athlete. I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. But he sat with me, like he could not wait to watch the next episode of The Last Dance. And so you see that, like I have, I watched um, Manchester City, the documentary on Amazon Prime. I watched the Tottenham Hotspur. Like I am in now to see content told in a way that has just never been done before. And I think it's given, um, you know, content providers a, a new angle into sport because people really are missing that. They're missing that information they're missing that feeling to do things just differently and, and the quality is just so good so i i hope that continues because that has been awesome for me to see yeah i was going to say that david stern the late nba commissioner said content is king and that still resonates to this day in a new way shape and form i think like you mentioned my wife is not a sports fan at all. And I can tell that to her. And she, she listens to this podcast, which she does sometimes. You know, she was never into racing, but we watched Drive to Survive. And that was something where my grandfather and my uncle came from England and they got me into the racing when I was a kid. And I'd gone without watching a Formula One race for, call it 15 years. And then when Drive to Survive came back, I was hooked instantly. It's all about the storytelling, the drama of sports, it's one of those things that compelling content in sports is unlike anything else that just pulls you in. And I haven't missed a Formula One race since, right? And I'll get up at four in the morning or five in the morning to get up and watch the races because I don't want it being spoiled on social media. I want to watch it in the moment. And so obviously content is very mobile now. There's a lot of opportunities to push it to your phone. How do you guys start to think about that as an experience 
rather than you know knowing that only a fraction of the population of the world of the United States of California will actually be able to attend LA 28 how do you guys start to think about and tackle that problem yeah Ramon such a good question right because not only is there a limited number of people that will attend LA 28 but the the fans of those games are going to be my 7 and 10 year old who are going to consume content and learn about the games in a very very different way and so you know I, I I'm not going to lie, I think we're still building our, our strategy for what that looks like. And I think that the platforms we see today to distribute content, they're going to change. And so, you know, the way we're thinking about it is how do you engage with an audience that today maybe doesn't see the Olympic and Paralympic Games the way I saw it when I was growing up, the way my parents saw it when they were, when they were growing up and, and watching. Um, but then also, like, how do you stay nimble and flexible so that you can adapt to new platforms and content delivery platforms that you just don't know about today? And so those are the two things I think in our strategy process that we're trying to keep kind of front and center. Like we have a target demographic. We have also a core audience. We need to keep them happy too, but we have a target and we need to be nimble. And so we have a channel strategy that you know allows us to be different things to different people depending on channel. Uh, but then we also have a lot of agility in that strategy of like, as things develop, like how do we just put a little bit of money here and test this platform to see what it, to see what it does. And then based on that, we, you know, we scale appropriately. I think those are the two things that we, we are, we are doing right now. Um, more to come, more to come on that as we, as we get closer. You make a very good point, right? Obviously the young demographic, your kids right now are going to be part of that core audience. And I know we kind of hit on this a bit, but is TikTok going to be still the behemoth that it is right now? Is Facebook going to exist in the same realm that it is? Because it's changing so much. But I, I would like to ask one kind of follow-up question on content about you is that growing up in Canada, watching the Olympics is significantly different than watching in the States. And so when I came to the States, for me personally, it's just not the same experience as watching content. I feel that the American perspective of content around the Olympics is drastically different than every around the world. I'm curious, has your Canadian or different diverse perspective helped see things in a different way? I think my team at LA 28 rolls their eyes a lot when I talk about how things were in Canada and how things are in Canada, but you're right. Like the Canadian perspective is very, um, I would say traditional in, in terms of consumption and very, family oriented like that's how we watched it was a it was a family and community event um, when we watched the games and i think here it is more around consumable content it's around content on the go it is around on a device that is convenient to you it, it's it, it is it's very different um you know i don't think this is a canada versus us thing i think this is a understanding that you have a, a core audience that you have to meet and provide entertainment and content to and you have a new audience that you have to meet and provide content and entertainment to and both of those are really important and so that that is part of the overall strategy is making sure that we keep our our core fans the ones that have been with us for many many years now happy with the information that they need with access to athletes and contents that they look for and the stories that they look for and do the same in, you know for that new audience in ways that is meaningful to them well, Zaylene, usually when we prepare for our guests, we do a little bit of research just to see whether you've written anything or said anything. And I am still just stuck on the latest thing that you quote retweeted on your Twitter feed, where uh, someone had said the phrase half the time strategy is the business of clarification. And you quote tweeted exactly right. And so I've been thinking about that ever since we set up this interview. How do you uh, perceive that phrase half the time strategy is the business of clarification? Well, you know, when you read something and it, it, it just speaks to you and you say, I wish I had said that, that's what happened when I saw that quote and tweet. And, you know, the reason I retweeted it was that when you do strategic thinking, when your job is around strategy, strategy is a really weird, ambiguous word. People don't actually know what it is. Sometimes, you know, I'm sitting there like, what am I supposed to do right now being strategic? But um a lot of strategy is unpacking a problem, unpacking a problem statement, unpacking an issue and realizing that a lot of issues and a lot of questions that are being asked of you are not black and white. They are very, very gray. And so when you peel back those layers of an onion 
And if you understand what those layers mean, what the, what the question, the, the sub questions of the major questions are, and you answer those questions and you piece it back together and you tell that story really, re really well, sometimes when you do that, it's actually just clarifying the problem statement or providing more clarification of the problem and doing it in succinct ways, putting a puzzle kind of back together or piecing a puzzle back together. A lot of that is strategy. And I find that if I can break down a problem or a problem statement and piece it back to, together in a, really, in a way that's really easy to understand, a lot of times I've answered the question that was being asked at the beginning. And so that's why that tweet meant a lot to me. It, it is a lot around clarifying a problem or making, making something more clear. Well, we'll consider that response as an answer to our Charlie Tremendous Jones question about the books you've read or advice you received. So that takes care of that. Awesome. Also in place of the question that we usually use to end all of our interviews, I'll take this opportunity to ask your opinion on what we were talking about before we started recording, which was the Bernie meme that everyone seems to be talking about. I know you have some thoughts, so hit us with them. One of the things that you know, we look to as sports marketers or, or what are other people doing or, or how are other marketers activating and what do we like when we, when we look out in the marketplace? And so, you know, the Bernie Sanders meme was going to be part of my example, because I think the things that I gravitate towards are the things that are a little bit tongue in cheek, a little bit clever, but a lot of real time and taking advantage of things that are happening in the moment. And so, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw this. You obviously saw the Bernie Sanders meme, but what happened with Bernie Sanders yesterday during the inauguration, as he sat there in the freezing cold in his Burton coat, if you went to Burton and you um, noticed that Bernie was wearing a Burton coat, well, Burton took advantage of that situation. And you can actually go on Burton right now and shop the look of Bernie Sanders, which I thought was extremely, extremely clever. I also really loved what Calm did during the election. I just think that there are moments that people realize and they understand the emotion that people will have during a period of time or what might take advantage of a certain point in time that will be clever. And those are the things that I really, really gravitate towards. So I wanted to mention both those things because I thought it was just, it was pretty cool. This could have been an extremely long podcast, but it opens up the door for us to bring you back in a couple of years or even sooner. Zaylene, thank you so much for the time today. No problem. Happy to be here. Happy to come back. You guys are doing awesome. Uh, love the conversation today. Well, we appreciate it. She is the head of partnership development and innovation, Zaylene Jen Mohammed. Thank you so much again. Thank you.